Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is managing editor James Kleiman to talk about a security breach at the CFPB and a bill looking to ban the use of trigger leads for mortgage customers. First, here's a word from our sponsor. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, talking with Matt Dowd, Vice President of Product Management at Ice Mortgage Technology, about mortgage automation. Matt, where is the company focusing investments to reduce the cost to originate? Well, we look at the market holistically and really as an ecosystem, and therefore, you know, we're investing accordingly. And what that means is we invest in everything from the point of sale, origination, underwriting, e-close, data, even into the secondary, and everything in between. So our focus is really to create automation and efficiencies every step of the journey. I love that. So important right now. And listeners, you can find out more at icemortgagetechnology.com. James, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, good to be back. Great to be back. I love when I get to talk to you two times in a week because um, that means we have so much news to talk about. So the story I'd, I'd like to start on is the fact that the CFPB, the regulator of uh, mortgage companies as well as other financial you know, institutions that serve consumers, itself had a breach um, of uh, personal data. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So here's what happened. There's an employee who works who worked at the CFPB and they made an unauthorized transfer of records containing personal information on approximately 256,000 customers at one financial institution, um, as well as other confidential supervisory information on 45 institutions. Uh, that said, there was no record that the evidence was shared beyond the former employee's personal email account. Uh, but certainly this is a considered to be a major incident and the Bureau had to report it to Congress. And it's, it's really a lot of red meat for Republican Congress members who have been looking for any opportunity to, uh, to take down the CFPB a peg or two. It's a bad look. I mean, this is the agency that requires, you know, financial institutions to jump through all sorts of hoops to keep things, you know, confidential and safe. Um, And here they have their own employee doing it. The the other thing that struck me, so the Wall Street Journal first reported this, we've got a story up as well, is that um, there was confidential supervisory information on 45 institutions. So almost like you know, what does that exactly mean? Is that is that what the Bureau was doing with all these institutions, what files they had on them, what actions they were going to take? What does that mean? It's, it's hard to know right now. The CFPB has released very little information. Uh, they have, however, downplayed the severity of this data breach. They said that it's essentially personal information largely limited to two spreadsheets with names and transaction-specific account numbers used internally by that financial institution. We also don't know the identity of that financial institution. Uh, However, the CFPB did say that uh, that spreadsheet does not contain consumers' bank account numbers, and and it can't be accessed to use someone's account either. Uh, But it's it's also a, a bad look because the employee... Uh, the former employee, I should say, uh, they were terminated, of course, uh, reportedly has not complied with a request by the agency to delete the emails, <laughs> uh, at least as of Wednesday. And we're we're reporting on this on Thursday. So it's, it's a very, very bad look. And 
Republicans have, have jumped on this and, and they say, wait a second, why is the CFPB trusted to collect more data, uh, burdening all of these financial institutions and and limiting services for customers when they themselves have demonstrated uh, that they aren't in every case, uh, you know, responsible in handling consumers' financial information. So it's it's yet another difficult incident that the CFPB will need to overcome. I mean, it sort of defies imagination that a regulatory agency has not been able to get its em- former employee to even certify or provide attestation, I think is how they said it, that each email was deleted. And I'm sure that's because, you know, there, you know, maybe there's not a law around this or whatever, but wow, that, that just seems crazy. No, there's definitely a law that there's no way that you are legally allowed to send confidential information from a regulator to your own personal Gmail or whatever it is. I mean, that's, it's, I I would bet um, my entire net worth, which is to say not all that much, but, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'd have to make my life pretty pretty difficult for a couple of years, and there's probably going to be uh, some legal action taken to force this employee to delete the emails or at least make sure that uh, it can't be spread any further. Um, and and we also don't know why this employee forwarded the data in the first place. So th- there are a couple layers here, and Republican lawmakers they want. Rohit Chopra, the director of the agency, to release more details to explain, you know, how, how bad is this? How many people are potentially compromised? Again, the CFPB says this is really limited uh, information. It's just names and, and transaction specific account numbers. But again, <laughs> until we have a little bit more detail, we we just don't know. Um, but it's it's not. Not a good look by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, However, the Democrats who are on the Senate Banking Committee say that the Bureau followed protocols, they notified Congress, and that they don't want people to jump to conclusions so quickly. Uh, And so it's become political as one might expect anything relating to the CFPB uh, to be. It is difficult for anything not to become political uh, these days, so, so I get that. But if I am one of the um, institutions that it supervises that that the part that would jump out to me is the confidential supervisory information on 45 institutions. So even if it's a spreadsheet, if it's like, you know, got some, like, is that like a list of like where they're, I mean, total conjecture, but, but that's what happens when you're not transparent about what that means is if I'm one of the institutions being supervised and somebody has collected that confidential information, uh, that's a problem. Yeah. And and so when the agency notified lawmakers last month, the CFPB said, look, we became aware of potentially inappropriate use of personal email account on February 14th, Valentine's Day, I believe. Uh, and then a subsequent review found 65 emails, some of which had attachments that contained confidential supervisory information. And of those 65 emails, according to the Wall Street Journal, 14 of those emails contained personally identifiable information about customers. What that kind of information might be, maybe it's uh, credit card information, maybe it's mortgage information, maybe it's uh, related to, um, you know, social security numbers. And we, we just don't have 
much clarity at this stage, but we do know that there have been other breaches at other agencies. This is the first I've heard of with the CFPB, um, but you know, people may remember that uh, records of more than 20 million people from the servers of the Office of Personal Management were part of two cyber attacks about a decade ago. And, and you know, government is, is certainly, um, you know, liable to, they're vulnerable to hacks and, and even whistleblowers or, or people who just decide that they, um, that they want to share uh, what they think is, you know, inappropriate, the issue in, in Massachusetts with the, the Massachusetts Air Guard, uh, National Air Guardsman Jack Teixeira is one example, right? I mean, that this is, a, it appears to be quite different uh, and we don't know the the motives behind it, but yeah, it's, it's a very, very poor look for the CFPB. And, and given that the Republicans do control uh, a number of pretty important committees in Congress, I think we're going to hear a lot more about this in the coming weeks, whether they want to release it or not. Yep. No, I mean, this, this is not something that uh, people are just going to let go and I mean, you know, your average consumer isn't going to be like calling their congressman, hey, you know, uh, do something about the CFPB. They have no idea what that even means. But like I said, if I'm a if I'm one of the institutions being supervised by the CFPB, I absolutely would be all over this. And I'm, I'm sure they will be. So we will be keeping an eye on that um, as that unfolds. And, you know, following up on, you know, when when the uh, employee does go ahead and uh, delete those emails and, and what they find out further. Jeez. So, okay, well, let's let's switch to another DC-oriented topic, and that is a bill that would ban the use of trigger leads. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is a good one. This is real, uh, real, <laughs> real good stuff. If you're in the mortgage industry, and, and especially if you're an LO or a lender who's doing a lot of uh, you know first lien originations, and um, and you're frustrated at at just one the amount of spam. Like I don't know how many people know this. When I applied for a mortgage. And, uh, I, I went with, you know, kind of a, a smaller, more of like a mid-sized lender in the country. But as soon as I applied, I got so many just spam calls and emails and texts. And, and so one of the, the credit bureaus definitely sold my information, right. To data brokers. And, you know, some of them were competing mortgage companies. Others were just like, you know, marketing firms that, that compile these so-called warm leads and then, and then sell them, you know, to, to someone else who's looking for, uh, you know, uh, an origination <laughs> commission. So it's, it's definitely something that a lot of people feel very passionately about. And, and let me break it down. So Richie Torres, he is a, a congressman here in New York. He is looking to amend the Fair Credit Reporting Act by prohibiting the creation and the sale of trigger leads. And, and this is something that the National Association of Mortgage Brokers and um, there, there are some other trade groups involved have been pushing for since at least 2018. And they really want uh, relief here because it's it's such a debilitating um, and and not a good experience for the customer. You know, you're applying for a mortgage with a company and then suddenly you have 15 other companies that are trying to get your business uh, and 
there are people in the mortgage space who say a lot of these companies that are are trying to kind of glom on um, don't do it ethically and they confuse customers and it's bad for everybody. And why on earth is a credit bureau allowed to sell this information in the first place? So it's, um, you know, typically these leads consist of names, contact information, other data, and then, you know, a lot of significant personal information um, is on there. It contains financial information. And and, um, and so the NAMB, the National Association of Mortgage Brokers, is really hopeful that this is going to go through committee, that this is going to get fully passed, and that uh, effectively Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax are, are banned from selling these to, you know, other data brokers. Which obviously not something welcomed by those uh, credit bureaus. Of course, they they can do this in a lot of other, you know, they can sell this kind of thing uh, in a lot of other industries, even if they just don't get to do it for mortgage, right? I mean, that's a very a pretty narrow um, reading or, or, or narrow defining of what they can do and what they can sell. Yeah. And this is kind of the dip of the spear in terms of lead generation. You know, the best kind of leads are always going to come from your primary sources, right? So if you're a mortgage loan officer, let's say you're a broker or you're working at a distributed retail model, you want to be as close to that lead as possible. And so in most cases, that's going to be the real estate agent, right? But in, in others, it might mean a financial advisor or um, I know some LOs who do a lot of business with divorce attorneys, right? Um, and so that that's going to be a better lead. That's going to be a higher quality lead. That's going to be a lead that is much more likely to close than these trigger leads. But people wouldn't do this if there weren't money to be made, right? So, so we know that the credit reporting bureaus are making some money. They don't break out the profits related specifically to trigger leads, um, but it must make them money. And there are all kinds of, um, you know, sort of like lead generation companies that are taking these, that are buying these leads from the experience and trans unions of the world and packaging them to a lot of consumer direct shops. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's going to represent a major change in how, warm leads are generated. Uh, and, and so this is really good for what I maybe inelegantly call like eat what you kill LOs, right? You have the contact with the primary source or the borrower reached out directly to your company, right? And, and that got distributed to you or, or one of your colleagues. And that's, that's a much better uh, proposition than <laughs> sort of this, this, um, you know, trigger lead, call center model. And uh, one of our reporters, Connie Kim, spoke to a couple loan officers. She looked across the internet, just trying to get a sense of, you know, what is the consensus here? And and one of the yellows, uh, he's, he's based out of South Carolina. He said, I can't begin to tell you the number of times a client in processing calls one of my LOs to question the bombardment of phone calls from internet call center sweatshops offering a much lower rate and faster closing and within moments of their loan application. Um, and another LO in California noted that clients get a lot more calls than before from competing lenders once they get one of those hard credit inquiries. And that just causes so much confusion. And and sometimes the customers end up going with, you know, who, who they believe is going to be offering a better rate. But then, you know, once the cake starts to get baked, then there are more fees and there are, you know, uh, 
sometimes bait and switch tactics that are used. So I think this is, if it goes through and it's still very early yet, uh, you know, there's quite a process before any bill becomes a law. And, um, you know, we don't know that this will pass, but I think it has pretty good prospects. Um, That said, you know, the, the three credit reporting bureaus are also very powerful entities and they have their own lobbyists and they have their own, uh, you know, expertise and, and their own incentives for for trying to make money on, um, you know, selling leads, whether they be trigger leads or, or other types. So it's um, it, it's a complex case. I, I think it's going to take probably a year or two to, to really fully, um, you know, whether whether it goes through or not, but but to see any major change. You know, uh, the, our story quoted the Consumer Data Industry Association, which um, understandably has their own take on this, which I, I don't think they think this is a good thing. And they're like, you know, um, you know, at a time when interest rates and housing prices remain elevated, you know, this is helping consumers maximize their choice. And so, you know, their statement said lenders making timely credit offers can maximize consumers' choices when they need it most. When shopping for a mortgage, this can mean saving thousands of dollars. And of course, I mean, we we have these two push-pull things within the industry, you know, there have been quite a few things initiated so that consumers can shop easier for a mortgage lender. But I'm not sure that the way that this is executed, you know, to me, it's the way it's executed that's a problem. If I got, you know, if I got some sort of, um, you know, if, if, if I'm looking for a lender and I got these other ways, but like, like you, when I did this, I was just bombarded. I mean, like I couldn't answer the phone for like two days. Cause I, I was getting called all the way through work every, you know, every 15 minutes, it was just like, wow. I mean, that was not a good experience for me. And then it was just overwhelming and confusing. And I know a lot about mortgage. Right. And I do too. Right. And so I, I can't imagine what, what the everyday average consumer who is already probably a little frazzled or, or, you know, overwhelmed by the mortgage process and just all the paperwork. And, and, you know, when you buy a home, like there's so much that goes into it. And, um, and then on top of it to, to receive so many phone calls that you never consented to, right. You know, I mean, it's not like Experian, TransUnion or Equifax say, Hey James, like congrats on, uh, you know, applying for a mortgage. It it sounds really exciting. You're going to get a house. Um, we wanted to make sure you were aware that there are some other offers out there and maybe the lender that you initially contacted doesn't offer the best product. And that would be different than just randomly getting, you know, 50 phone calls in a 24 hour period from lenders that I have never heard of. And I do this professionally. And, um, and so yes, I, I think that there are cases in which someone does inquire with with the lender that they initially went with, and then they do get a better rate. I, I think that's very possible. Again, like these things wouldn't be happening if there wasn't uh, a financial incentive. I think it's unlikely that there are a lot of people who are saving thousands of dollars from a trigger lead shop, but you know, it is possible. I suppose. I, I share your skepticism there. <laughs> As you said, I mean, there are a lot of ways that like you can think you're saving money. And then when you get into the weeds of it, you are you are not saving money over the original person that maybe you contacted and you knew about through, um, you know, more uh, relationship means or just that they have a big name in the space. Because like you, that most of the calls that I got were not from people who are recognizable to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I heard from random, you know, consumer direct companies that, when, when I look now, you know, did like $230 million in business in a year, you know, like 
that's a very, very, very small shop. And it, it, most of the companies, by the way, that contacted me no longer appear to be in business. So I don't know that that's really a benefit to consumers either. Yeah, no, boy, that's a great point. Well, um, I know we have a lot of things uh, going on in the newsroom and some things coming up. What are some of the features that we should be looking forward to? So we are doing more reporting on the trigger lead question where we are looking to speak to LOs who have potentially lost leads or or who have uh, had to work with clients who become confused after they receive, you know, the, the 40, 50 phone calls, texts, emails, et cetera, that, uh, you know, that, that sometimes come with trigger leads. So we're, we're going to be working on that. We are looking to do a few follow-ups on what happened at, uh, at HomePoint and, uh, and, and the new company that is in a way spawning from HomePoint called the Lone Store. And we've got a, a couple more going on in, in terms of what's happening at Open Door. And, and so they're really looking to, instead of competing with agents and denying them a commission by buying the house outright, right, as, as an iBuyer, uh, they're looking to integrate them further into their process and offering higher commission splits. And, and so we're going to be looking at that and, and really the broader iBuyer model right now and, and what the future holds. And personally, I don't think it... Uh, it, it has legs for the long term, but uh, Open Door, technically still standing. Uh, OfferPad, again, technically still on their feet. So it's it's early innings yet, and uh, and and we're just we're excited to to dive in and and uh, you know share share what our reporters are are picking up every day. You know, I spent some time with some title folks this week um, at a at an event in Austin, and it was fascinating to kind of see what they're focused on. One of the things is that FedNow program, which um, is, you know, sort of like the federal government sponsoring, you know, they're, it's kind of like a Zelle or a, a Venmo or whatever. And um, you're going to be able to do, you know, sort of instant payments through the federal government site, which sounds great. But if you're a title person, um, there are a lot of, there are some complications there on um, using that to, you know, pay off, you know, doing the, what you would normally do through a wire transfer and the potential impacts there uh, for fraud and also losing some money if, if it's the, if there are nefarious players in there. So it was, it was really interesting there. And I know that um, we've got Brooklyn Han working on a follow for that. So I'll be really interested to see that right now you can already do that but it's it's going widespread um this summer and i haven't heard a lot about that i mean there there's been some things about it but it's like oh okay a payments thing but the federal government getting into the payment space is actually super interesting yeah I, I hope that they do a better job of it than some of these private companies so just to give you an example uh my wife and i had a baby 16 months ago and we have we have an excess amount of strollers so we have <laughs> two travel strollers. We have like this big like Humvee stroller that is an absolute beast. And we, we just don't need two travel strollers for one baby, right? So we're looking to sell one. And my wife puts pictures up on Facebook Marketplace and says, you know, $100 for this stroller, barely used, honestly. And about half of the inquiries were Zelle phishing scams. Wow. And so someone will say, yeah, I'll pay it, no problem. And and they'll pay you like almost immediately. And then you'll look at the email and the email address that it comes through is like zellpayments2 at gmail.com or something. And uh, and then of course, nobody comes to pick it up 
because they never intended to and never intended to pay you. Uh, so I, I imagine that the government will be a little bit more discerning than uh, some of these companies that really don't don't have the ability to do much once the instant payment goes through anyway, right? Anyone who was, uh, you know, erroneously Venmoed, uh, someone they thought was a friend, uh, turned out to be a stranger and requested the money back is, uh, you know, probably yeah. going to be a little SOL there, right? So <laughs> I, I imagine the government will do a bit better job there. That said, the government and technology it usually pretty choppy when they try to get it off the ground. I try to pay my taxes in New York state, for example, and you have to set up your own username and you have to have all these documents. And then it just tells you, sorry, like your account can't be registered today because the system was overwhelmed and they couldn't like, they couldn't process enough people setting up accounts that day on tax day. Wow. You know, it's just, it's just <laughs> stuff like that. Right. Like, I mean, if you remember the rollout to what we colloquially call Obamacare, um, just stuff like that is is always going to be, I think, uh, you know, a, a situation where there are some kinks to work out in the beginning, and but hopefully it, it can be a groundbreaking program, and um, hopefully you know the title insurance, which also is is starting to invest pretty heavily in technologies and really making I think a lot of strides toward modernizing, um, will will have to figure out how to integrate it because they're just going to get left behind if they don't, and that's you know. I, I don't know if I mentioned this, but last time uh, I'm in contract to sell a house and I've been very surprised at how slow and analog the title process has been and how little recognition there is from other people in the real estate space as to doing things a little bit more digitally. So I thought, okay, look, I know that I'm going to have to get a notary if I don't want to attend the closing, which is scheduled for the 28th of April. So I talked to my real estate agent about it and she says, oh, okay, well, if, if you don't want to do that, you're going to have to find a notary and you and your wife are both going to be there at the same exact time. And then you're going to have to go to a separate store to get a slip to send it back. And oh yeah, they don't accept emails for this sort of thing, but they do accept emails and only communicate via email for other parts of the process, like sending back your disclosures to the IRS and stuff. And you're like, what, what why, what, how, how, how does how does this make sense to anybody? Right. And like, and I do this for a living and she does this for a living. Like we're all in the real estate space. The buyer is actually a real estate agent. And, and so the whole thing to me is just so crazy that, that we're, we're no joke, like a decade behind. It's, it's still distressing when I think about it. So today I have to, I have to take a little bit of time off work after this podcast, Sarah, to find a notary. That seems very old school. Yes. And, you know, both you and I, um, I believe this house is in a, a resort area, correct? It's, it has an HOA. Yeah. So it's it's sort of like, it's in the Poconos. It's sort of a vacation-y um, destination. There's a lot of short-term rentals, which is not something we really want to deal with. Uh, and, and we didn't end up making it out there all that much because we have a baby and it's it's just too much. Well, well, I had the same um, exact situation when we sold in a resort area, and there were just limited options. And and in general, this is not just the title company in the resort area. Everything about that resort area, it was, uh, it felt really like you know, sludging through um, 
mud instead of water, you know, what, what should have been an easy process on all sorts of things, getting the permit, uh, talking to, you know, a, a lot of people. It wasn't just the title company, but it just shows, I mean, there's there's lots of things to do there. I do think the title industry is very much not, maybe not the people we've dealt with on, on certain things, but they're interested. But in this case, the Fed now, the problem is, um, while they welcome the idea of a safer way to send it, if somehow you have gotten the, you know, if someone's uh, fished somebody and gotten the wrong email in there or whatever, gotten the wrong um, uh, information of where you're supposed to put it, there is no way to recall it under the current way that it's structured. Now, they're uh, Alta and other people are in front of, you know, uh, the different powers that be in DC to say, hey, here's some alternative ways we could just tweak it a little bit so that, you know, we, we don't all lose a bunch of money because somebody got in there, wired it to the right place right now. And, and a wire transfer, um, you know, what they say is they can get back about 80% of something if it's within a certain amount of time, if you're alerted to it and they can jump on it, about 80% can be recovered. In this current thing, it, it will take like, uh, three to six seconds to um, to get money out from the institution to maybe to where they thought it was supposed to go, but it's fraudulent and there's no way to recall it. So that that's a problem. That's kind of like a, <laughs> that's a major problem. Why would someone want to use that? So you're going to have consumers wanting to use it because it's quick and they're familiar with it, like Zelle or whatever, but you're going to have title companies and, you know, lenders being like, yeah, this is a, this is a really bad situation. So going to be a lot of happy princes in Nigeria though. Uh, absolutely. So I'm looking forward to the feature that's coming on that and just to learning more about that and, and all the things that your uh, newsroom is working on. So James, thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate it. Thanks, and Sarah. good luck with your closing. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I'll, I'll let everybody know next week how it, how it goes. <laughs> absolutely. Okay. Thanks. We have a Slack channel at HW that publishes all the new registered users for our HW events, like the Gathering of Eagles coming up in June and Housing Wire Annual coming up in October. I was just scrolling through the Gathering of Eagles feed on Slack, and wow, I am blown away with the quality of the attendees. Leaders from Keller Williams, Better Homes and Gardens, EXP, Compass, Hannah Holdings, Remax, and Home Services and incredible ecosystem partners like Zillow, Austin Board of Realtors, New Western Acquisitions, UWM and Bright MLS, just to name a few. If you aren't familiar with GOE, this is our real estate brokerage event for the most elite brokers, teams, MLS execs, and state and local association of realtors leaders. June 18th through 21st in Austin, Texas at the amazing Omni Barton Creek Resort. Visit the events tab on realtrends.com or housingwire.com to register. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.